Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and me, radio host Emily Reese. In our last episode, we talked about famous composers and their favorite wines. And on this episode, we're going to talk about quite well-known wine personalities and their favorite composers and or compositions, which is really cool. We are on Instagram. You can find us there at Scores and Pours, and you can always send us a little DM with some show ideas if you'd like. And please rate us where you listen to your podcasts. If you like this show, please consider making a financial contribution to us at patreon.com slash scores and pours. We have various tiers that make it really easy for you to decide what works best for you. In all cases, there's patron-only content, and in a couple cases, there is are some actually some free merch to take advantage of. So go ahead and support us there. Patreon.com slash scores and pours, and thank you so much to our existing patrons. We couldn't do this without you. Hello, Jill Mott. Why, hello, Ms. Emily Reese. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? Well, my orange pants are reflective of the fact that I'm super excited about this episode. Yes. I've had these orange pants almost longer than I've been alive. Like well, if, they, if they were any smaller, I think I had these since I was a child. <laughs> That's amazing. It's back when jeans were actually made well. Yeah. Yeah, they're very orange. They haven't faded. They don't have holes in them. You know how many, you know how many service schedules I've worked through with in these those pants? orange pants. Pants. <laughs> a lot. Like more than hundreds. Wow. I know. That's amazing. It's amazing that they aren't stained with like wine, you know? You think of how many red bottles of wine I've opened right. or poroned in or from or drank. Mm-hmm. In those very orange pants. Man, I can't believe I don't have any stains on these pants. pants. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> well, on today's episode. Yeah. This is another one that's kind of more you. You know what I mean? Oh, yes. I'm putting the, <laughs> my hand on my forehead uh, with my palms out and yes. just saying, yes, it is. No, mm-hmm. it's not. I just had... It's only because I chose the people, but the people yeah. chose the music for you. <laughs> it's kind of great. I know, I know. And some of this uh, music I had not listened to in a long time, so that was super fun. I chose wine personalities. Yes. Some of them winemakers, some of them wine writers and, and critics, mm-hmm. and asked them, sent them, depending on whether I know them personally or not, sent them DMs or you know emails and said... What, who's your favorite composer? Do you have one if mm-hmm. you listen to classical music and, and or your favorite composition? Almost everybody got back to me, which was fantastic. And I chose them a little bit at random. I made certain that I didn't include any producers from Spain because I feel like that would be a given for those of you that know me and know mm-hmm. the amount of contacts I have there. This would have been like all yeah. Segovia or something, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. uh, and we didn't want that. Should we just jump right in? Uh, please, yes. I, I asked you right before we hit record where we were going to start, because of course I know the music list. Mm-hmm. And when you told me, I was like, okay, well, let's just start with the elephant. Let's just start with the <laughs> giant, the just the big, huge, you know, one. Well, what's funny about that is this person is actually, even though she's one of the bigger natural wine personalities right now in on the globe, when she's in a room, she's keeps very much so to herself, quite a quiet wine personality, even though she's got a big, big voice, you know, Mm -hmm, in in her point. 
I'm talking about Ms. Alice Firing. And Alice is, I think, a, a little bit of a controversial figure in wine only because she has kind of put her stamp on the wine she approves of as natural wines. And I think she's the first one to also, she's uh, someone that would say, listen, it doesn't need to be absolutely no sulfur. I'd rather have an, a little bit of sulfur added and not have a faulty wine. Mm-hmm. But what I love is she has for well over a decade, been steadfast in saying, I want to drink wines and support wines that are authentic, that showcase diversity, that are made in a natural vein, and that are honest. And those are all attributes that I agree with as well. Mm-hmm. Just to give a little background on Alice, and and when I say she's controversial, I mean, you know, she's very opinionative, and some people don't like that in a wine writer. They'd rather have, like, all factual information or, like, encyclopedic, and I think she just writes from the heart. I really like her writing. It's, like, mixed fact and opinion, but it's always in a very... It's always just a, a very, um, there's pros to how she writes, which is nice. So just a little background on Alice for those of you who are either A, not in the natural wine world, or B, have never heard of Alice. She's written for the New York Times before. She's written for Forbes Traveler. She's got a blog and a newsletter called um, The Firing Line, which is world-renowned. She's got many awards for her blogs and, and her writing. In 2008, she wrote her first book that was The Battle for Wine and Love, or how I saved the world from Parkerization, which is like really, it's like an amazing title, but it's, it kind of gives her, that's one of the reasons it gives her a lot of credit in the title, right? Just the title itself. And I think some people read that and are like, wow. (laughs) I don't even know what it means. Robert Parker prefers Coke over, he used to prefer Coke over wine. He liked sweet things. And he was traveling Coca-Cola? over... Coca-Cola? Yeah, thank okay. you. He traveled over to France often, and he wine was cheaper than Coca-Cola, so he ordered wine. And he started to get into writing about wine, and he would give... He, he sort of invented what we would call a, a worldwide used point system. This wine oh. is worth 90 points. This wine is worth 94 points. Gotcha. And so what happens, you make a wine that's... 100 points. Well, I want my wine to be 100 points, so I'm going to make my wine just like your wine. And the bigger, the better, and the riper, the better, and juicier. And because he liked Coca-Cola, he had a preference for wines that were like overripe, saturated, extracted. And, you know, obviously those are like, that's the antithesis of what Alice likes. So she wrote, and it's, it's it's a good book, you know, especially for people that you know, it's it's like at this point, kind of wine history. Yeah. You know, people that grew up yeah. and because right now, parkerization. Now there's there was already like the, you know, the whiplash effect where people were like, no, high alcohol wines are terrible, and only drinking low alcohol wines. And then they realized, okay, let's meet in the middle. Let's find. Let's just search for balance and heart and diversity. Yeah. I met Alice while we were on a trip to the Republic of Georgia together, and it was uh, really nice to get to know her in a setting that was like off our home turf. It was great to share stories and, and talk about music. And when I messaged her and said, hey, you know, what's your favorite? Because I know she loves classical music and jazz. I was like, what's your Mm -hmm. favorite, you know, who's your favorite composer? Do you have a favorite composition? And she was like, Beethoven String Quartet, number 14 in C sharp minor. Yeah. Opus 131. Yes, ma'am. And I was like, wow, that's 
fantastic. And she's like, oh, sorry for being so unimaginative. And I was like, what? Unimaginative? <laughs> That's like one of the best pieces ever. I said, can you explain to me why? She said, I'm in line for locks. I'll let you know in a second. Which if anybody knows Alice, Alice eats very well and she loves her locks. That's amazing. Um, and she got back to me and she said, he has me has me at the opening, the yearning, the passion, the reaching, all of the themes buried in almost, and at times dissonant. And I just think it's beautiful. She said it was an emotional favorite because it's been with her ever since high school. It does sound like their strings are thicker or they're pushing harder on them or something. Is it? it could also be partially the way they were recorded and the microphones they're using and how close they are to the microphones oh, okay. and what kind of room they're in. That makes sense. All that stuff, too, yeah. So what do you think of this piece? I mean, I know we'll listen to a snippet of something else, but what do you Yeah, think? I mean, this is one of the best string quartets ever written in the history of string quartets. And... Uh, a lot of composers actually talked about how much this particular string quartet means to them. And even Beethoven, it was his favorite of the string quartets that he wrote. It's unusual in about a thousand ways, which is, again, kind of a hallmark of Beethoven. We've Name talked about him them. a lot lately. Why is, why is... Uh, there's seven movements, which oh, yeah. is strange. Written in 1826, just to give everybody some orientation. And if you'll recall, he died in 1827. So this is the end of his life. And All of our listeners are like, yeah, I recall that. Yeah, 1827 is when he died. 1770 is when he was born. But this, um, his 14th string quartet, and as I mentioned, seven movements. Most string quartets would have four, although there are, of course, exceptions. It's also a little unusual because it starts with a fugue. The very first movement is a fugue. Now, we've talked about fugue or fugues on scores and pours before, uh, and so I'll just give a little recap of that quickly. Please. So a brief recap of that. A fugue starts with a single melody, and that melody is called a subject. The subject is immediately answered in a different part, and that answer is called the answer. So the subject is the first melody, and then it's answered in the answer, while the answer is happening, the first melody does a little something new, and that's called the counter subject. So those are three very important parts of a fugue. The subject, which is the first melody, the answer of the subject, and then whatever that first instrument or whatever did during the answer is the counter subject. So three important elements of a fugue that you'll hear in this first movement of this Beethoven string quartet. 
it's unusual. It's it's, but it's just an absolute is all, masterpiece. Is it all that dense? Because no. I've listened to it. I've listened to all the movements on their yeah. like some of them together, some mm-hmm. of them on their own. Mm-hmm. But I haven't listened to all of it, at, all seven movements, at, you know, in one sitting. Yeah. And I wondered, is it like, um, is it all that dense? No, definitely not. The other movement we're going to listen to. I wanted to listen to the fourth one. Can we listen to the fourth one, please? Yes. That's the theme in variations. Yes. So yeah, let's go ahead and listen to that. I was gonna. We'll, we'll listen to um, uh, another one as well. But yeah, here's the uh, fourth movement, which is in A major. So here Crazy. we go. So being a theme in variations, we're hearing the main theme right now, mm-hmm. and then everything after that will be a variation of it. Do you mind if we fast forward to approximately the second minute, about 15 seconds or so? Sure. sounds like a lot of like if there were a lot of voices sort of I don't want to say crying because that implies like sadness but Mm -hmm. there's like and then all of a sudden it gets so delicate yeah and pretty much totally deaf at this point as well when he wrote this so yeah so there's a little bit of that do you have more words to say about Alice or do you want to hear just one one more little bit couple more things I mean if people are looking to get in I get questions all the time about you know I want to learn more about natural wine and I want to learn more about you know what is natural wine Alice has a slew of books to choose from. The first one I actually ever read of Alice's was a book she put out in 2011, and it was called, it's called Naked Wine, Letting Grapes Do What Comes Naturally. And it's basically a lot of experiences that she's had with winemakers that she thinks are doing things the right way. And it's just, it's well written and it goes in depth enough to make you think, but it's simple enough if like you don't know a ton about wine, you're going to learn you're going to learn a lot. She also put a book out in 2019 called Natural Wine for the People. And it it's even more in-depth on what is natural wine, what does she consider natural wine. And really good book. She's, you know, a great personality and a champion for natural wine. And I, you know, for all intents and purposes, like one of the, one of the first that really got behind it and then had a, had a voice and created a platform for a lot of other people to come in and champion natural wine as well. So hats off to Ms. Firing. Yes, and what a great, lovely selection for a favorite of hers. Let's listen to the Presto. This is a scherzo, which was a Beethoven invention. So it's fitting to hear this, uh, although a lot of Beethoven scherzos are in three. One, two, three, one, two, three. It's fast. Uh, This one's in two. But that's still fun. So this particular movement is the fifth movement 
in E major. So here you go. The 14th string quartet of Beethoven. This is the fifth movement. Can you explain what a presto is? Presto just is the tempo. Okay. That's, uh, yeah, presto is the tempo. and um, Like you said, then lively, yep, brisk. Okay. Yeah, brisk. Um, yeah, it's a really fantastic string quartet. He does something cool. One of the things that Alice mentions is about themes being buried in and about. And he did do that. He used themes from different movements and in other movements. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And um, he did that from time to time. He did that in his fifth symphony. He did that in his ninth symphony. Anyway, love it. Well, shall we? Yeah. Go on to next wine personality? Well, can we drink something? Yes. (laughs) It has to do with this next person. I just wanted to talk about him first. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. We have a couple wines today, so. Sweet. Um, This next personality is maybe one that I don't think a lot of people have heard of. His name is Jeff Vajer and V-E-J-R. And I I guess I didn't really mean for there to land two to three people that I know that's either surround Georgian wine or I met them in Georgia or what, Mm because that's not how this, it was intended to be. But I met Jeff on the same trip to Georgia as I met Alice. And he brought one of his semillons to taste. You know, a lot of people bring wine on a trip um, when they know they're going to be with other wine people to taste, whether it's wines they import or make or, you know, it's their favorite. And Jeff's history is really cool because he started making wine in about and helping in cellars in like 2010 in Spain. He's um, made wine in France. And in 2013, he was going to go to Australia to make wine, but he got sidetracked. He took a walk in a vineyard in Oregon maybe in Oregon or Washington, I can't remember, with Barnaby Tuttle. We've talked about Barnaby on the show before. And he came across some semillon vines, white grapes, the darling grape of Bordeaux, of white Bordeaux, I should say. One of three, okay, whatever. <laughs> um, but he, and he was like, oh my God. Now, semillon was his aha moment in wine. Okay. He's like, oh, well, I got to stay here now and I got to make some semillon. So wow. then he planted roots in Oregon. I mean, I think he's from the Pacific Northwest, but he decided to plant some Venice roots there and make wine. And he's been going at it ever since. And since his trip to Georgia, you know, he is really enamored with the old world as well. And so he's making Saparavi, Georgian red grape. He's Neat. making that in Oregon. This is a California wine we're going to drink made by Jeff. He's sort of kind of all over in a few different realms. He makes some really crazy blends and he's just a really cool guy. Um, the wines are clean. They're devoid of of faults. He, he uses a, just a touch of sulfur to make sure that they're not like too volatile or too this or too that. But I, I just think they're pretty fun. And he's um, was the only producer to pour wine, speaking of his bohemian origins, he was the only producer from the United States to pour at the Prague Drinks Festival, which is the Eastern European natural wine festival a few years ago he was the only american producer which is cool. which is pretty cool so jeff suggested symphony number no. 9 from the new world from dvorak obviously he's a new world winemaker so maybe that's why he thought it would be very appropriate plus he loves it um so here we go yep this is the first movement 
starts out really slow and then it gets awesome. I mean, the opening's awesome too, but... how it goes into this faster part. Yes. Yes. Symphony okay. and brass, yes. Well, and I do have to say, just with this playing underneath us, <laughs> yeah. Jeff said, I asked, you know, why? I mean, obviously, you're, you're of bohemian descent, but like he yeah. said, he writes back, quote, obviously because of the origins of my family name, have become well-versed on some of the Czech's cultural luminaries. And while I appreciate precision of German composers and the dramatic nature of Russian composers, I do prefer the elegance and grace of the Czech composers. And I was like... Great answer. Great answer. A little emo. A little dramatic <laughs> right now, I will say, Dvorak. <laughs> But when we hear the first theme, it's it's so good, and here it comes. So he wrote this when he was working in the New World, right, in New York? Yes, he was uh, working in New York. He would take his summers in northeastern Iowa in a Czech community called Spillville, Iowa. It's beautiful, beautiful Midwestern country there. And, uh, yeah, he, he lived here not for a, a too long of a time, but long enough so that he was impacted by the music he heard. And he heard some African-American spirituals, I think he heard some uh, Native American music and uh, took inspiration from that uh, for this symphony, in large part for the very, very famous second movement, which has a gorgeous English horn solo in it and a fairly famous melody. Four movements, give or take 40 minutes, right? Yep, four movements, very common in a symphony. Mm -hmm. A fast movement, first movement, a slow second movement, and a couple more fast movements, usually how that shakes out. English horn, the larger relative of the oboe, so it's a little bit longer and is kind of got a bend at the neck and a kind of a bulbous bottom. It's a beautiful sounding instrument. I love English horn. I also kind of love the name of this wine, by the way. 
Yeah, it's just a big, awesome, ugly label that says purple drank. Shall we? Yes. Before we listen to some Smetana? Yes. To scores and pours. To scores and pours. And to all of uh, the cool wine personalities that contributed today. Thanks, Love guys. It. Wow, the color, you can tell there's like a little kind of slight brickiness. You yeah. can tell that the wine isn't brand, brand new, or maybe it's oxidative grape varietals. We'll find out here in a second. But it's like just flecks of like maroonish, but there's also quite a dark Bing cherry looking color. It's super grapey. The nose smells like wet cigar boxy. Like it's yeah. very like if an old man's closet smelled good. <laughs> you know? Yes. Gosh, if I were to blind taste this, yeah. I would think it was like really old school California wine, or I would think it's like Spanish wine. Like it's got that large and in charge dark fruit. Yes. A little bit of that tobacco-y. It's quite tannic, mm -hmm. but there's a, a bit of oak. And it's not like it's incorporated to mm -hmm. the fruit, but it's yeah. um, a little bit obtuse. You know, there's like a, a bit like a lot of oak. Yeah. But yeah. I don't not like it. No, I, I don't think it's too much oak because if it were too much, I wouldn't like it at all mm. personally. But I, so for me, it's not too much oak. I like that just that little bit of sarsaparilla too. It's quite tannic. I mean. Yeah. Um, but the bright acid, you know, there's like quite a bit of volatile acidity that's like hanging around my palate that yeah. feels really good for all those tannins to assimilate. Nice. Nice long kind of oaky finish. Yeah. I like it. What do you think? I think it's absolutely delicious. I love how like purple grapey it is. You know what I mean? It's like. Yeah. And it leaves that in the back of your throat, which is great. Do you want to hear what grapes are all in this? Yes. Purple drank it is. Yeah. Because here we have a lot of juicy zin. We have meaty Syrah. We have Grenache to lighten up the color a little bit and to give some nice estery red fruit alcohol. We have Sanso for some acid. Carignan for some nice structure and color. And Mouvedre for sappiness, for color. Wow. Earthiness. Yeah. All of those grapes, three years in Bordeaux-sized barrels, older French oak. And then it's bottled unfined and unfiltered. And this is, it says 14% alcohol. He says it's 15. I was going to say. Something. It, I mean, yeah. Kind of larger than charge. Yeah. I like, think it's Like it's his composers that he likes. You know, elegant, yeah. mm -hmm. refined, mm -hmm. but also. Yes. Shall we? Sure. Smetana? Smetana kind of considered like the father of Czech opera. He wrote more or less what's considered to be the first real Czech opera, you know, as as opposed to writing operas that took sounded like German opera or sounded like Italian opera, or, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So he wrote a really, really great opera called The Bartered Bride. Smetana lived from 1824 to 1884. And he wrote The Bartered Bride in the 1860s. And it's just a three-act comedy. And uh, it's it's got bohemian dances in it, which is really fun. And some of them are really famous. And you might even recognize having heard them in the past. So let's first listen to uh, the opening, how it starts, the overture of The Bartered Bride by Smetna.
Okay, hey, kill me here, but this sounds very Czech. I wonder why you think that. I don't know, because it doesn't sound Russian, and it doesn't sound French, and it doesn't sound... I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Can no, we listen to that again? Yes. Like, that sounds very Eastern European dance. Yeah. Not anymore, necessarily, but that entry was just like, whoa. Yeah. Here's one of the dances. That sounds, I could, I, I would mistake that maybe for Russian, but it sounds like Eastern European, Western Russian, like dance. Yeah, Polish, Bohemian. Yes. I think the symbols are a big part of that too. Thank you, Ottoman Empire. Yes. Super fun. Smetna wrote a lot of great music. Good stuff. Go Jeff Fazer. Yes, thank you for that. Ooh, I just took a sip of that. Plums. Mmm. Fried plums. Purple drank. Purple drank. Okay, Elena Pantaleone. You ready to go on to another winemaker? Yes. She's like a hero of mine in the natural wine world, and I can go more into that, but I won't. Why? Because we're already 40 minutes in. Elena has a, a property in Hacienda called La Stopa, and that property has been around for a century plus with vines and a beautiful place to stay, farmhouse, if you will. In 1973, her father bought the property and the vines. And in, by 1991, Elena decided to move to the area and work as part of the winery and kind of be the, the main vision of the estate and, and making the wine. She has hired an enologist to help her with that. By 1996, she had eschewed most of the non-native varietals. So as vines die, you know, you have to plant new vines. She said, listen, I don't want anything here that's not native to this area. And so very slowly, they've been getting rid of all the Bordeaux varietals, all the Cabernet that was planted, Mm -hmm. all the, you know, whatever. And who is this woman? Like some people know of La Stopa because of a very famous natural wine movie that was put up, a documentary by Jonathan Nossiter, a great director, called Natural Resistance. And I I can't remember when that came out. It was like 2000, maybe 13 or something like that, 2015. But in that documentary, it shows Elaine is one of the top figures in terms of you know, not bowing down to the DOC and what the DOC meaning, Denominazione di Controllata, the rule book. Yep. I don't want to subscribe to the rule book. I want to make wines in a natural vein that tastes like this area that are made with hardly any sulfur added, Mm -hmm. unfiltered, all this stuff. And they've been organic since the mid-90s. Yeah. Long macerations on the skins. 
So you're, that's a very old technique of really leaching a lot of the tannin and a lot of the antioxidants out of the, out of the grapes. So when I emailed Elena. I was like, Elena, I know you don't know who I am, but I love you and your wines. Love you a long time. <laughs> Can you please tell me who is your, your, do you have any favorite composers or works? And she gets back to me with a laundry list. She's yeah. and, and she says, I'm a basic listener, so I'm sorry I don't know that much. But I'm like, basic listener? Yeah. She came back to us with Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto Number no. 3 in D minor. Yeah. We were both like, yes. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah. And no, not a basic listen. Yeah. And we'll talk about more of what she liked in a moment, but I thought that that was great. We should yeah. listen to a little Rachmaninoff and then drink some wine. Yes. I mean, it's considered one of the most difficult piano concertos to play. And there's a lot you can find online about people talking about that and how scary it is and mm -hmm. how intense it is and over the top. And what I love about it, though, is how simply it begins. Like, you could literally, I would imagine, train a chimpanzee to play the opening of Rachmaninoff's Third Piano Concerto. But after you turn the page, you're just done. There's no way. Because <laughs> it's, it's, first of all, it's, it's long. There are long passages where the piano is just soloing on stage in what we would call a cadenza. And, you know, when I think about some of these things the pianist has to play on stage with the whole orchestra not playing, right? The whole orchestra drops out and then the pianist comes in and plays this ridiculous virtuosic cadenza. I mean, I'm, I'm, you're sitting there just up on stage being judged by a whole bunch of professional musicians wow. in mind. I mean, it's, it's intense, uh, but it's an amazing piece. And uh, let's listen to a little bit of the first movement then we can talk a little more if you want about her uh, and definitely should listen to a little bit of the third movement. But here's here's how it starts. And written in 1909, correct? Yeah. Sorry, I forgot to mention that. Yeah, he wrote it in uh, 1909 and it's it's got uh, three movements, but a concerto. We talked about a symphony. You know, it's pretty common for that to have four movements. Um, it's common for a concerto to have three. Stopa is located in the heart of the northern area of Emilia-Romagna. So this is like where you eat and drink if you go to Italy. I mean, you eat and drink all over Italy, let's be fair. But Parmigiano-Reggiano, balsamic vinegar, mo like Modena balsamic vinegar. Yeah. Great bread. Amazing. It's like a, a bread basket that the Italians know about, but for the longest time, the Americans didn't know the bread basket that was Emilia Romagna. So her property, and it's so cool, they sell honey. Of course they sell wine, but they sell tomatoes and tomato, like jarred tomatoes. They're just like a really cool organic estate that, you know, half of the estate is dedicated to forest land and surrounding nature, and then half of it is the farmhouse and vines, which is, be still my beating heart, Miss Pantaleoni.
So, I mean, the first movement is, you know, more than 17 minutes long. Just the first movement. So a lot happens in the first movement, including that really, you know, kind of simple-ish sounding opening. Um, but it does... But absolutely gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. And there are a lot of gorgeous moments in here. Rachmaninoff wrote some absolutely beautiful music. I love it's just so unexpected, all these twists and turns. And yeah. I remember texting you being like, oh my gosh... I can't believe how long it's been since I've heard this piece. I love this piece so much. And you're like, it's a difficult piano piece. Of course you love it. Yeah. <laughs> and I was Jill like, oh my God, like... Elena Pantaleone and I have the same taste in piano concertos. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to say some crazy, crazy Lestopa wine. I was very lucky to come across a bottle, thank you, New France Wine Company, of her 2007 Vigna del Volta. Wow. Yes, this is a dessert wine. Oh. That is, at this point, like kind of a medium dark copper color. Yep. And it almost looks like the... If a like the horse when a horse is like in the sun and that like amber color of its it's just gorgeous. I mean, it just looks like whiskey, <laughs> or it looks like whiskey. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is her Malvasia. This is ninety five percent Malvasia de Candia Aromatica, which is a very old clone of Malvasia, and then about five percent Moscato. And the grapes are harvested when they're perfectly ripe, maybe a little overripe. And then they're left to dry in the sun for anywhere from five days to about two weeks. And that concentrates the sugars. They don't quite raisin, but then they're pressed. And so what you're left with is this quite sweet juice, a little bit sweeter than normal. It's pressed with a hand press, um, not an automatic press, and then left to ferment naturally, which it takes a Damn long time for really sweet juice to ferment. And in this case, this is aged for three years in barrel and then two years in bottle before it's released. So this wine wasn't even released until 2012. And it's been hanging out in bottle ever since, so for almost 10 years. So it's named for the year it's released, not the year it's stored? Uh, it's, uh, it's neither of those. It's 2007, so it's from the harvest Oh, year. yeah, gotcha. So of course, of course. Three years in barrel and about two years in bottle. Okay. And then released in approximately 2012. And I don't even think she makes this anymore, honestly, because I saw something about Semillon and dessert wine on her website that I've only had once, but I thought she'd have this as well. But this is what's called the pasito method, is when you're taking grapes and getting them, drying them somewhat in the sun before pressing them and making wine out of them. To Elena. To Elena. Turkish apricots. Never had one. Apricots. Like dried ones. Yeah. Tastes like them too. It's really good. Tastes like literally like a juice box. <laughs> it's so much. It's so sweet. It, but it actually surprisingly still has some refreshing acidity to hold on. Yes. What's interesting about this is, you know, pasito wines are really rare and they're very expensive. And... It's cool to be able to drink a La Stopa dessert wine because there's just, I mean, most people, if they know 
natural Italian wines. They've had, you know, her amazing red blends, the incredible Ageno. Everybody knows about the esteemed white uh, Ageno, which is always like a work in progress for La Stopa. But I think this is like a little... I don't want to even say a diamond in the rough because everybody knows how great mm-hmm. their wines are, but it's just something that not a lot of people get to drink. So what a cool experience. It's really delicious. What do you think about the palate besides the fact that it's sweet? When I took my first drink, I thought it was going to be too sweet. But like you said, there is just like a little bit of acidity in there. And it's, um, it just has like this warm hug to it. Mm-hmm. That I really like. Do you yeah. notice a little bit of tannins? A little bit. Mm-hmm. From the oak? Sure. Uh, what's really cool is, you know, 14, 13, 14-year-old dessert wine. Just Amazing. Just drinking fresh as, I don't want to say fresh as yesterday, because it's you can taste that it's had time to mature in barrel and bottle, mm-hmm. but it's just super beautiful and... Hats off to Elena and her team at La Stopa. A couple of the other things that she recommended, or were her favorites, I'll say. She loved Samuel Barber Adagio for strings. Yeah. She also loved Mozart's Clarinet Concerto in A major. Very I mean, close to my, my heart. Everyone should. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yes. That was a weird laugh. But yes, everybody should. Keith Jarrett. Mm-hmm. The Colm concert yeah. in 1975. And you had said it's a little more jazz. Yeah, because he's obviously a jazz keyboardist and musician. Yeah, Keith Jarrett is a a jazz musician. He's released some classical albums, too. Um, That concert uh, has a really interesting story to it um, because the piano wasn't the right piano and it it didn't work quite right, but they were supposed to record. And so he almost walked like right before the show and they kind of got talked into staying and he had to kind of read adjust his improvisation plan for the evening, you know, because really only the middle register of the keyboard sounded good. And I mean, it's just, it's a unique album. Yeah, the Colton concert, I listened to it and I really enjoyed it. I, I actually had never heard it before and it was really fun to hear it was jazzy. There was a, a there were a couple of movements that were like a little bit more kind of you could tell why she lumped that in with classical. Mm-hmm. But Keith Jarrett like recorded over a hundred albums. He's played with Miles, like cool mm-hmm. to give it a listen. She also loved the Debussy Claire de Lune, mm-hmm. which we've talked about on the show here before. Who else you got? Louis Antoine Lut. We've talked about him on the show before. Burgundian, so a Frenchman, who moved to Chile, worked in restaurants as a dishwasher, worked his way up to a sommelier, Amazing. decided I want to go find old school vineyards and learn to make wine in Chile and see what's possible here. He could obviously have gone back home to make wine. But who wants to pay gazillion dollars for grapes there and have that rule book and have all that prestige and all that terror <laughs> of, you know, shoes to fill yeah. when you can just experiment and do what you want in Chile? 
And there's there was nobody doing it at the time. So I would say he's no longer like full-on natural winemaker, but he I think he's like the father of Chilean natural wine in terms of what we have available here in the United States. Every time I ask Louis Antoine like a question about his wines, he's really quick to respond, which is super sweet. And so when I asked him this question that didn't have to do with wine, I was maybe a little worried. He said, oh my gosh, how can I follow your podcast? <laughs> and I love Schoenberg, Arnold Schoenberg, and I love George Gershwin. And I said, oh, wow, that's those are loaded answers. Yes. Um, can, do you have a favorite? And he said, I would be in English. He said, I would be rude and maybe too simple. Anything that's vibrant and energetic is fine with me. And I was like, yes, <laughs> yes, Louis Antoine. I don't know. I, I was thinking one of my favorite Schoenbergs, but that I have a hard time getting my head around is the Serenade. I know that you were pointing out uh, something else. Like, what, what are you going to listen to? I chose one of Arnold Schoenberg's earliest works, and this is before he went into his 12-tone technique, almost by 20 years. Uh, this is a, a string sextet of his, his opus four. It's called Verklärte Nacht. Uh, which means Transfigured Night, and he wrote it in 1899. So again, this is before Schoenberg went off into his atonal world. So this is, tonal music is just very uh, dense. It's two violins, two violas, two cellos. Here it is, Verklär Tanakh, the opening movement by Arnold Schoenberg. it sounds like a really thoughtful and solemn part in a movie. Like, mm-hmm. I could see this being, like, after somebody's been, unfortunately, like, murdered and the loved ones are, like, like the partner is trying to figure out what happened or, like, reflecting or it's like a funeral scene. It's, like, very... Yeah. Yeah, it's really dark sounding, and it's interesting because he wrote this for a woman that he was attracted to um, based off of a series of poems, or based off of a poem about a man and a woman taking a walk, like in a park or something like that. And so it's interesting when you're like, oh, he was, he was like so taken by this woman that he wrote this piece about her, but it's like really dark and like just, I mean, it's really just a product of the times, like super, like right around the turn of the century. Everybody's like, music is like, you know, with pieces like this, they're really pushing the boundaries of just conventional harmony mm-hmm. and uh, everything is about to burst, but not quite yet. And so there's just this tension in a lot of music around that time. Can we listen I mean, to a little more? Yeah, just for sure. Little... Do you want to hear a different movement or just sure. more of this one? Sure. Let's listen to some of the last one. Thank you. 
kind of funny now that I think about it. Like Gershwin and Schoenberg. Yeah. They're like somewhat polar opposites in my mind. They're really different. They're similar in that they were pushing conventions. You know, Schoenberg in terms of tonality and harmony and Gershwin in terms of, you know, blending jazz and pop music of the time with classical music. So Mm -hmm. in that way, they're both breaking conventions, but in very different ways, as you point out. Yeah. Thanks to Mr. Lutz for getting back to us uh, so quickly. This next dude is like warms my heart in so many ways. His name is Chris Terrell, and he's an importer of Georgian wines from the Republic of Georgia and some French and Spanish little goodies too, but primarily Georgian wines. It's like the bulk of his book. And just look up Edible Brooklyn, Chris Terrell. (laughs) And there's a picture of Chris on his bike with a little, like, cooler trailer Mm -hmm. delivering wine. Neat. So Chris is a one-man show who delivers wine in New York on his bike. (laughs) Like, the guy's insane. Mm -hmm. He does it to keep prices down. He does it to be better for the environment. He does it because he hates getting parking tickets. It's like (laughs) all these things that are just, I mean, he's the most hospitable very uh, environmentally conscious and just a really cool dude that in 2004 he was cycling through he loves to bike obviously yeah he was cycling through the republic of georgia and like he didn't have a lot of places to stay and he would like knock on doors and be like do you have a place to stay and they would just be like stay with me and he like learned about georgian hospitality you know fast forward and by 2012 ish, like maybe a, maybe a couple years shy. I'm not sure of my dates, but like around the turn of the decade, he was already, he was starting to like import Georgian wines and doing it in this really small scale that could support just, you know, he's one man show. And I was trying to, op- you know, I was w- opening this wine bar in 2014, I think it was. And I was like, I have to have Georgian wines. If I don't have Georgian wines, like the birthplace of wine, the cradle of wine, you have to have these crazy orange wines that are aged in amphora and all these things. And Chris helps us get them here to Minneapolis, and his, you just look up his portfolio online. It's just so cool. He treats everybody in his book like family, and, I mean, they are family. Chris got back to me and said, I love Gustav Holst, and I love the planets, and I love the movement, the Mars movement. First movement. I was like, yes. Yes, you do. Mm-hmm. And although we love that and have talked about that on Scores and Pours, I thought about going with the other piece that we have maybe even brushed across but haven't listened to, mm-hmm. Prokofiev's Peter and the Wolf. Yeah, I don't know if we've ever talked about that on Scores and Pours. Yeah, and so I thought, what a great idea. You know, there's obviously the version with narrative and the v- version without narrative, and I didn't figure out which was his favorite, unfortunately, but Prokofiev, I mean, you, you'll you'll tell the story better than I will, but what a cool, what a really cool work and a great suggestion from Chris. Yeah, Peter and the Wolf is often used to help kids uh, learn what instruments sound like because each of the actors, quote unquote, in the story has their own instrument. So 
you know, like the cat, for instance, sounds uh, is the clarinet or, you know, the wolf is the horns or the bird is the flute, the duck is the oboe, that kind of thing. And it's just a, kind of a little propaganda-y in, of the times where a lot of Russian pro- propaganda toward children was like, children helping to recognize when older people are doing the wrong thing. Mm. And so the grandfather is kind of in that role in Peter and the Wolf and Peter just like also like man conquering nature with, you know, Peter kind of taking care of all the animals and conquering the wolf and all of that stuff. But yeah, it's a, it's a great fun piece and I'm certain you've heard it before and, you know, obviously, if I listen to it, I usually listen to it without narration. But narration is super fun. And there's also some really great films of it. I think there's um, there's one I saw, oh, God, I wish I could remember now, many years ago uh, on YouTube. Uh, I think it was brand new at the time or something. But there's you can find really great films of it, which make it even more fun, kind of. So let's listen to a little bit of that. Yeah. So Peter is the strings. The bird is, as I said, the flute, so it's a little bit of the bird. And of course, your favorite, the bassoon. This is the The grandfather. the kitty. I love the cat. Yeah, the cat is the clarinet. It's, I think my favorite theme is the cat theme. Anybody listening, I mean, I'm sure you listen all the way through our outro when we talk about June Media Inc. June (laughs) named after Emily's kitty. Yeah. June, also known as June Bug, also known as Junes. Yeah. And June is could stand to lose a little weight. Just a little. And <laughs> this just so reminds me of June. She like stumbles into the booth. Yeah. Yeah, let's listen to the wolf with the horns. Mm -hmm. 
sounds cold out. Yep. Russian cold. Yeah, brr. You know, that's a little crash course. And Peter and the Wolf, it's great. Thanks, Chris Terrell. Love that. Love you long time. We got one more. We do have one more. Yeah, I, I wish I could summarize in a quick three sentences about how awesome of an individual Chris is, but he's always supported all things Georgian and learning about that culture and the wine world is better for it. So thanks, Chris. Thank you, Chris. So I was pretty sure when I emailed this next person, I was not going to hear back. (laughs) Only because she's pretty much the most respected female anything in wine in the, on the planet. And I'm sure she has no idea who I am. I emailed her and I was like, hi, my name is Juma. These are the things I do. And <laughs> could you please tell me about blah, blah, blah. And, and she wrote you back immediately. And she was like, wow, I'm talking about, I'm holding my heart. I'm like, she's got her hand over her heart. Ms. Jancis Robinson. <laughs> Jancis is, I, and I only say this because even though she's not like a Alice firing of natural wine and out there, she's a different kind of authority. Like I grew up with Jancis in my wine learning and academia. Okay. Let's back up. She did answer me right away. Yeah. We'll get there. Yeah. First of all, I just need to drink wine because I'm yeah. getting very excited to talk about Jancis <laughs> Robinson. Well, let's just cheers to her right now. Just cheers to Jancis. To Jancis. All right. In 1984, Jancis was the first person outside of wine to get the master of wine title. How? How? Well, she was the editor for a wine and spirits magazine in England. Yeah. She's from England. And being an editor, obviously, she had to have an interest or learned to have an interest in wines. So Master of Wine is like the neurosurgeon of the medical profession. So obviously, already the medical profession is like WTF and then go be a neurosurgeon. Yeah. So the Master of Wine takes years to acquire that title. And in 2003, she... Received the OBE from oh. Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, which yes. is Order of the British Empire. Yes. For whom she consults for their seller. Wow. Neat. Jancis. Okay. And so I, I came to know Jancis in about the mid-2000s because I wanted to learn more about wine. And everybody that asks me, they're like, should I buy the wine Bible from Karen? What's her name? I'm like, yes. But you know what else you should buy? The Oxford Companion because it's an encyclopedia of wine terms, name your wine term, and it's going to be in there. And it was authored by Jancis. Now, granted, there are a lot of contributing authors and things that they've taken from, but like, yes, please. Atlas of Wine, indispensable. You have to have that book. And the, the Atlas of Wine is like every page you turn is a, you're getting a view of France, a map of France, a map of the Loire Valley, a map of Sancerre, a village map of Sancerre. Like, it's just incredible. Yeah. Author of that. Wine grapes. 1,200-page book on grapes. Jancis. Ladies and gentlemen. She, in 2018, was voted as the most influential wine critic in U.S. and French polls. The most influential wine critic. Which, think of how many of those there are now with the internet. Yeah. Everyone's a critic. And she says, you know what? Actually, I'm not a critic. I'm a writer. Yeah. Okay. Wow. She's yeah. killing it. She's still Amazing. into wine. She's married to a, a 
very another famous, I think, writer who's in the more kind of embedded in the food world. But she said, I really like Tchaikovsky. Eugene Onegin. I always pronounce it like I'm half Spanish, half <laughs> Bosque. I say Eugene Onegin. <laughs> yeah, it's not that. It's Russian. Eugene Onegin. Yeah. Okay. Or Yevgeny Onegin. Yeah. Okay. And she said, I'm sure you can find a good excerpt. <laughs> I mean, it's a two and a half hour opera. I'm sure we could. <laughs> yes, we'll do our best. So it's opera in three acts, and that's what we'll listen to today. But she also said she loves Handel choral works. Um, yes. During the holiday season, she really likes In the Bleak Midwinter by Holst, another Gustav Holst um, yeah. piece. I love the answers, too, that she clearly loves choral music, and uh, that that's amazing. I grew up listening to choral music because my mother was a singer and – or is a singer, and uh, we – we listened to a lot of choral music growing up, these big, large-scale choral works, like when we listened to Handel's Messiah in a previous episode. You know, that's an oratorio by Handel, and he wrote several oratorios, so you know, more than a dozen. So, um, you know, there's such a depth of work there. But yeah, we did land on talking about Tchaikovsky's Eugene Onegin, and this opera uh, he wrote in the late 1870s. Uh, Tchaikovsky died in 1893. So this is a later work of Tchaikovsky's, and it's based on a, a, a Pushkin novel, novel right? in verse, yeah, by Pushkin. And Pushkin, like the godfather of that era, Russian yeah, literature. Yeah, Russian literature, yeah, yeah total genius. And um, Kind of cute when you look at old art of him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, maybe they were glamorizing, but like kind of kind of good-looking dude, Pushkin. Yeah, for sure. And just an interesting kind of story about this opera. Just Tchaikovsky ended up doing most of the libretto, which is mm-hmm. the lyrics for the opera. And that's pretty Rare. unusual yeah. for a composer to do the libretto. And also, it's not really like a continuous story per se. It's kind of vignettes throughout the life of Eugene Onegin and... Certainly doesn't have a very happy ending, and it's beautiful music because it's Tchaikovsky, and of course the dance scenes are brilliant because Tchaikovsky wrote brilliant dance music. In fact, the Polonaise from Eugene Onegin is pretty famous, so let's listen to that. Perfect. This is how you'll feel when you get your atlas of wine in the mail. <laughs> That's what we should definitely listen to some singing uh, from Please, this opera. Yeah. In fact, the opening uh, duet is so beautiful uh, between two of the female characters. So let's listen to a little bit of it. Harp, harp and clarinet. Yeah. 
And it's a love story, right? I mean, we want we want to talk about. Well, I shouldn't say it's a love. I mean, kind one of. person loves someone else, and then that person doesn't love someone till later, and and then someone makes someone jealous, and there's a duel and stuff. <laughs> Basically, Eugene Onegin goes with a friend to a house, and he sees this woman named Tatiana. She falls in love with him. He kind of pushes her off and is like, "Man, I'm not, I'm not relationship material." And then, um, you know, fast forward many years later, he goes to a party and sees her, finds out she's married, and then all of a sudden he wants her. Of course, what you what you yeah. can't have. Yeah, and so he's like, I want you to leave your husband, who's a prince, like seriously, like you're going to leave a prince? No. So he's like- For this asshole who didn't want you when you weren't beautiful and exactly. had money. And yeah, before okay. you had this status of, you know, and she's like, no. And so then that just kind of fades, then she lo- fades to but black then a little. But she, then she's like, I love you, but no. Yep. Yep. I love, love you, ya, but I'll be but faithful and I'm going to do my thing. Bye. Yep. You missed the ride. You had your chance. I know. You know? Yeah. So that's how Eugene Onegin I can't wait ends. to watch yeah. it. It's pretty great. I recommend it. It's, you know, it's it's fun. And the music is absolutely stunningly beautiful. Wow. Uh, do we want to listen to like another little half second? Yeah. This is Tatiana singing about how unhappy she is now that he's come back and said, come be with me. And she's like, yeah, but no. Russian opera. Yes, yep. please. Russian opera, although I believe the U.S. premiere was in Italian. Oh, really? Yeah. And there is an English version. Yes. Yikes. Yeah. Why do that? I I don't know. Because, I mean, as we talked about, I think the book is in verse, mostly. And so, you know, Tchaikovsky preserves a It's actually in verse that is like the Pushkin version of Shakespeare. Yeah. It's, it's like pentameter, or it's like, it's, it's not iambic really, pentameter, but it's like, and with male and female yes, rhymes. Yes. It's intense. Yes, please. Yes. Yes. So let's not make that into English. No. Because it's not going to work. No. I agree. Well, to these brilliant minds who make amazing wine and talk about wine in amazing ways, uh, cheers. Cheers to Elena, to Chris, to Jancis, to Louis Antoine. Jeff. To Jeff and Alice. Cheers to all of them. Thank you so so much. Thanks so much, guys. To Scores and Pours. Scores and Pours. (laughs) 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Emily Reese and Jill Mott. You can find links and information about this episode and our podcast and support us financially at patreon.com slash scores and pours. You'll also find a link to our merch on that same page. We're on Instagram at scores and pours. Send us a direct message there with show ideas and be sure to rate us where you listen to your podcast. Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music. Edited by Jill Mott and Emily Reese. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc. June. June's little kitty.